Emerging markets are where the growth is. No, wait. Emerging markets are being hit by US interest rates and a trade war. Can both be true? How do you separate emerging market wheat from chaff? Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Daniel Moss, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. What actually is an emerging market? And how do the really good ones stay hot? Here to help us find out is Anu Madgavka, a partner at McKinsey Global Institute in Mumbai. Now, Anu is really the perfect person to help steer us through this EM thicket. She's the lead author of a McKinsey report called Outperformers, High Growth Emerging Economies and the Companies that Propel Them. Anu, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Let's start with a basic question, uh, for which I rarely get a clear answer. What is an emerging market? I mean, it's tough to say that Mexico equals Malaysia equals Malawi. How should we be thinking about this question? So you're right, Dan. Uh, Emerging markets, you know, there are a very large number of economies that are variously called emerging or developing, and they're all actually very different from one another. Uh, So we uh, actually have focused on the idea of uh, economies that are growing rapidly. So growth momentum is, you know, the most exciting feature of an emerging economy for us. So we start by looking back in time and really thinking about emerging markets as those that weren't rich to begin with, and then really asking the question of how fast are these economies narrowing the gap between themselves and the richer countries. So looking back to the mid-80s, we really look at which countries weren't high-income countries, basically defined as at the level of about $6,000 per capita of GDP at that time. And we have a universe of about 70 significantly large economies that uh, sort of meet that criterion. Uh, And then we filter from there a set that have actually sustained very rapid per capita GDP growth over a 20 to 50 year period. So going back to the mid 60s or then starting from the early 90s. So over 20 to 50 years. Some of these countries seem to become very buzzy for a while, like Poland or Brazil and then fall on challenging times. What makes for a sustained, successful performance? Not many of these have actually sustained performance over long periods of time. We found just 18 countries, of which seven actually did it over 50 years and another 11 did it over 20 years. Uh, So staying turbocharged for long periods of time actually requires, uh, you know, two or three essential elements. Uh, The most important of these is actually a sort of culture and a set of institutions that inspire and facilitate people to save and companies to invest. Uh, So the whole savings and investment, the productive use of the, the accumulation of capital and then the productive use of that capital typically has accounted for 60% or more of growth amongst these 18 outperformer uh, economies that have sustained growth over long periods of time. Uh, And then the other aspect of, of what it takes to succeed is really institutions that have fostered competition and innovation, 
and and therefore growth in total factor productivity and that's another roughly 25% of growth well when you start talking about total factor productivity you're starting to lose me i'm just a journalist looking only at this list of 18 the vast majority of them are located in asia is there a secret source for that region uh, the set of countries that we call long term outperformers who've grown over a, about 50 years are actually all uh, based in Asia. So here we include countries like China, South Korea, Singapore, and then Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and so on. Uh, so there is something about uh, a sort of regional factor, the fact that you know one or two large economies took off, and that seems to have created some kinds, kind of ripple effect around the region. Uh, but if we look at the more recent set of outperformers, which are the 20-year growth stories, Uh, We do find some regional diversity there. We do have India and Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, Laos from uh, Asia, but then you also have Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan, uh, Uzbekistan, uh, and Turkmenistan, which have uh, grown over a period of time on the back of very different drivers. Uh, And then you actually have Ethiopia, which is in Africa, of course, so not uh, not really uh, close, close to Asia in that sense. I'm so glad, Anu, that you mentioned Ethiopia. For those of us who came of age in the 1980s, that seems like a head-scratcher. We're used to pictures of famine and live-aid rock concerts. What's going on with Ethiopia? I think uh, Ethiopia has, um, while it doesn't have, you know, it's not in Asia, so it doesn't have the locational advantage of being near a very large growth country or a growth cluster, But it does have uh, at least one other really important characteristic that we see in common across the outperformers. And this is a set of of very purposeful reforms that have actually opened up the market as well as created conditions conducive to investment. So Ethiopia came out of a very difficult civil war phase, but then in the 80s really started its first phase of reforms, which was very farming and agriculture-oriented. In the early 2000s, they actually moved into a much more infrastructure-led wave of reforms and growth, and on the back of that have been investing in a whole set of sectors and industries across logistics, uh, you know, different kinds of manufacturing, including labor-intensive manufacturing and so forth. So uh, like some of the other recent outperformers, there is work still to be done to sustain and, uh, in fact, increase growth momentum. It's not that... Uh, Ethiopia or any of the other countries can declare victory. Uh, But it's quite interesting that at least one uh, country in the sub-Saharan Africa region has actually uh, taken off over this period. How important is trade to being an emerging market star? Trade is an important aspect of, uh, or a common uh, sort of aspect, right, of uh, most, if not all, of our outperformers. Uh, simply because I think being connected to the global economy has helped them do two things. One is tap very rapidly into new sources of demand. It's not the only source of demand, so domestic demand has played a big role. Domestic consumption and investment has played a big role in the growth of most outperformers, but trade has given a very very attractive growth opportunity to many companies coming out of uh, the emerging, uh, out of the outperformers. 
And then the other thing that global connectedness has done, and I, I would say more, uh, you know, even more than trade, it's just being connected with the rest of the world uh, through all kinds of global flows that include, um, you know, flows of information, data, financial flows, uh, technology transfers, uh, FDI. It's uh, just being connected that has actually also encouraged and, and enabled more innovation in many of the outperformer economies. So we would think global connectedness is actually quite an important driver in addition to the capital accumulation we already talked about. Sitting here in New York and looking at headlines about tariffs, a reasonable person might think that it was all over for trade. There is the trendy narrative about deglobalization. What did you discover when you drilled down, Anu, about the dynamic of world trade patterns? So it's certainly true that the top line or the aggregate global trade as a share of GDP, you know, just that one number, uh, has indeed declined uh, ever since uh, 2008. But as you say, right, if we drill down, what we do find is that, uh, first of all, it's really uh, goods trade that has taken most of the hit. Uh, and, and most of that, if not all of it, is really the value of commodities within goods trade. So manufactured goods, particularly labor-intensive ones, uh, you know, exports or trade in these is still growing. Services trade is still growing as a share of GDP. Uh, the, the second important aspect is that the corridors of trade are really shifting, uh, and this is quite a profound shift. So if we look at uh, what we call uh, broadly South-South trade, which is trade amongst or between emerging economies as opposed to emerging versus rich economies. So South-South trade has actually grown as a share of you know, global trade in goods from something like 8% to above 20% uh, over the last 15 years or so. Uh, and that's actually quite dramatic. It's grown at uh, you know, two, to, two to three times the volume of uh, all the other corridors of trade that you can imagine. does China play in all this? Is China now importing stuff that it used to make? There are many interesting ways, actually, in which China is reshaping not just its trade or its trade with the US, but, uh, you know, some of these global trade corridors and opportunities. Uh, one, one trend that we see is that China is focusing more and more on uh, manufacturing and export of more knowledge-intensive or R&D-intensive goods, particularly in the high-tech, electronics, computers, those kinds of spaces, and in a way receding or seeding space uh, in the lower value-added types of manufacturing like uh, textiles and leather and so on. Uh, and some of that export volume is, is actually moving, moving to lower labor cost countries like Vietnam and Bangladesh. So that's one shift. 
the, the other important shift is that we think that China as an engine of global consumption is also growing very rapidly. Uh, emerging markets overall will drive something like 60% of global consumption out to 2030. So they are collectively important as drivers of global consumption. But China's role within that uh, is particularly uh, large and important. And there will be parts of that consumption that are actually going to be sourced from other lower labor cost markets as well, because uh, domestic consumption of manufactured goods in China will pretty much continuously increase for the next uh, uh, 15 to 20 years. Anu, people often talk about favorable demographics in emerging markets. By that, they usually mean young populations or populations that are younger than in the developed world. Can you drill down a bit for us? Are some of these societies starting to age, and does that matter? I think the demographics of emerging markets vary quite a bit, going back to your opening question about, you know, how can you speak about them in the same breath? And that's equally true of the ageing profile. Uh, So you do have in our universe the, you know, uh, countries in in the northern and eastern part of Asia, uh, the Central Asian countries. uh, These definitely, uh, uh, you know, are going to see and are fairly rapidly going to see uh, aging, whereas you have South Asia and then you have Africa where this is not going to be the case, right? But as you step back and think about the drivers of growth, we did actually find that you know, growth in labor supply was 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 a very very small part of um, the the total growth that uh, that took place in the outperformers. So, growth in productivity per worker is actually much more important, and and therefore, even as economies age, there are very important drivers of productivity that still represent opportunities for unlock. In other words, you have uh, economies that are not completely urbanized, and we know that urbanization actually lifts productivity by two to three times compared to, you know, living in rural areas. You have economies where, you know, financial access and financial inclusion is not complete, and this is true even in regions like Latin America, and we know that encouraging savings and investment actually does drive up productivity. Many emerging markets have big conglomerates that are either state-owned or privatized to government-friendly groups. Is the sway that these corporations have a benefit for emerging markets, or is it a hassle? We think that the outperformer economies, actually, uh, many of them for, for whom you know we have the data and can study this feature, uh, but we do find that one really striking feature of these economies is the role that companies of of a significant size have played uh, in driving their growth. Now, uh, are these state-owned or are they privatized but with substantial uh, state uh, or quasi-state interests? Our data set essentially covered companies that are publicly listed. So whether they have a majority state shareholding or or a private shareholding, as long as they're publicly listed and in some ways answerable uh, or their data is transparent. That's the universe we looked at. But looking at such companies, we find that the outperformers actually had twice the number of large companies as other emerging economies did. 
that these had actually grown uh, much faster. So they had grown from revenue to GDP of something like, you know, in the mid-20% region to uh, the mid-60% region, uh, which is extremely rapid growth just in terms of sheer scale and scope. And there is, there is reason to believe that these companies are competitive. In the US, we wrestle with the role that automation and robots will play as technology advances and as our workforce ages. When does this become a problem for emerging markets and are they equipped to deal with it? Automation and technology are fundamentally very powerful opportunities to drive productivity in emerging economies. And then because they they do change the nature of work, uh, they also result in a new set of work opportunities or a new type of job uh, and and employment uh, uh, impact, right? Now, now how exactly this plays out uh, depends to some extent on the economic cost and benefit of deploying technology. So if you think about uh, labor cost as a proxy for that, uh, we find that there are, I think, a large number of low labor cost emerging countries, uh, typically those where uh, per capita GDP is less than $5,000 or so, where even over the next you know, 10 to 15 years, these countries would, in our opinion, have the potential to raise both uh, employment as well as GDP from manufacturing activities. So the deployment of technology would allow them to raise uh, value add and productivity in manufacturing, but also employment. Uh, not all countries fall into this bucket. So there are you know, the higher, uh, higher income emerging economies where this would not be the case and where uh, the questions around, uh, you know, how can you actually create productive jobs in services? Uh, how can you actually reskill and redeploy people from what they're doing to the new and emerging areas within services sectors is going to be actually one of the central challenges as well as opportunities for emerging economies as, as you think about inclusive growth. Anu, thank you for walking us through the world of emerging markets. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can follow me on Twitter at Moss underscore Eco. Benchmark is produced by Tova Forhez. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.